danger is stealing in as relapse comes above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 344 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by today's guest, Matt Glassman, who is uh, somewhere in Northern Virginia. Uh, I imagine many people listening to this will have heard a Matt Glassman episode before. Uh, if not, you're in for a treat. Uh, Matt is a distinguished political scientist uh, and also a, an excellent uh, card player, all-around games player. And um, he, in particular, you know, he, he uses his familiarity with uh, games to look at politics and the political sphere through the lens of game theory. Um, so this is one of our less poker-centric uh, conversations with Matt, but it's also one of our more explicitly about you know how game theory applies to analysis of you know, real life events and things that political actors are doing. Uh, this was a much requested episode in light of uh, recent events here in the United States, and we do talk a good deal about um, the whatever you want to call it, the assault on the on the U.S. Capitol, and about the events leading up to that, about what's happened since then, about the motivations of various political actors involved uh, on, on both ends of the, the spectrum or, or all across the spectrum. Uh, and I think, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with Matt, um, I think, you know, I know there's a tendency to sort of like turn off when you're like, oh, politics. You know, this is not like a, a a blue versus red sort of conversation. This is much more about just understanding, you know, what are the incentives of uh, of, of various actors? What's leading people to uh, to take certain actions uh, in in the political sphere? And then also, you know, maybe some some things about how do we want to behave as, as citizens or how do we want our government to be structured such that we're providing the right incentives to those political actors. So for those of you who are familiar with how game theory applies in the context of poker, right, we're talking about a lot of the same things. We're talking about incentives and we're talking about um, you know, trying to trying to predict how how other actors are going to behave, and of course, that's much more complicated in the political sphere where there are uh, so many different potential actors, including um, the citizens them, themselves, uh, which of course was part of what made uh, the events of last Wednesday so uh, remarkable. Yeah, so we'll talk more about that with Matt, but just to give you a sense of what to expect from. The interview, uh, of course, we will have a strategy segment first, and if you enjoy these strategy segments, or just if you enjoy the show in general and want to keep it going, uh, please support us on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Uh, depending on the tier that you subscribe to, you will get up to five strategy discussions a week, uh, so one for each weekday, uh, and these are just pure strategy. There's none of this rambling like I'm doing now. There's no uh, guest or, or interview. It's just some combination of myself, Nate Mavis, and Carlos Welch 
discussing strategy hands that are submitted by various patrons. So this is your best opportunity to uh, hear us discuss a hand that, that you submit, or it doesn't have to be a hand, a question that you have about poker. And these are just, you know, very quick, efficient, straight to the point strategy segments. So if you enjoy our strategy segments, please do support us at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. And of course, there's lots of other strategy material available from us in the Knitcast store, which is at www.knitcast.com. That's where you can get uh, earlier premium podcasts that we've done, uh, my uh, ebook versions of uh, my books, Play Optimal Poker and Play Optimal Poker 2. There's a, a long strategy video that I did with Carlos called Exploiting Small Stakes Tournaments, and more available at knitcast.com. All right, this hand comes to us from uh, Mackinnon, or I'm not sure how to, <laughs> Mackinnon. Um, and and uh, this correspondent says, this is a hand that I thought I played well in the moment, and then upon reflection, I thought I butchered. It's also a hand that I think represents learning opportunities that are too often missed. Sometimes we play poorly and still get all the monies. First, some game context. This is a 1-3 game, max buy-in is 1k, there's no rake, we're paying time. Uh, the most common quote from dealers is six players to the flop. Most players cannot spell VPIP. If they could, they would recognize theirs is around 66%. Villain 1 is the nittiest knit at the table by far. Indeed, perhaps the only knit at the table. His VPIP is well under 15%. When I call him a knit, though, it's probably important to understand I only have that info in terms of his pre-flop game. Over the past few hours, he's played fewer than 10 hands, showed pocket kings once, and not shown much else. Villain 2 is a meaningless rig. Villain 1 has just under $700 we cover. Our image is whatever. Sticky for sure. Nowhere near a wild player, but I've had to say things like, you're good, sir, I have 6 high, a time or two. Villain 1 raises the $25 from the cutoff over a $6 straddle. Uh, hero calls on the button with pocket 7s, and there's one other caller, a surprisingly low number. Correspondent says, seems standard. Given expectation of additional callers plus position, you could easily argue for a fold here as well. He is that prototypical of an old man coffee. Um, I'm just going to give you the whole hand, and then I'll come back and give you my commentary on it. So with $85 in the pot, three players to the flop, and our hero holding pocket sevens, the flop is eight of diamonds, seven of hearts, five of hearts. Player in the blinds checks. The original raiser bets 60 into a pot of 85, hero calls with middle set, and the third player folds. Thought processing game, woot woot, that flop smashes our range, does not hit his at all, obviously bet is obvious, let's not scare him out, and maybe villain two will get frisky. Thought process later, if you're not raising this flop against old man coffee, what the hell are you raising? Heads up to the turn, $205 in the pot, turn is the queen of hearts. Board is now five of hearts, seven of hearts, eight of diamonds, queen of hearts. So three hearts on the board. Our hero has pocket sevens for a third set. Villain bets 90 into 205. Hero calls. In game. Well, fuck. Not what we wanted to see. Still, he now has exactly two combos of hearts, uh, which would be ace-king or ace-jack of hearts, and even ace-jack of hearts is unlikely. So call. Later. Well, reread that. There are five combos that beat you. There are at least eight 
aces and kings, legit combos that you beat, plus others that are possible, king-queen suited, for example. Of the combos you beat, quite a few have the ace of hearts or king of hearts in them, uh, a raise would deny equity for sure. Heads up to the river, it's the five of clubs, making the final board five of hearts, seven of hearts, eight of diamonds, queen of hearts, five of clubs. Our hero has uh, pocket sevens for one of the smaller possible full houses. $385 in the pot, villain bets 150. Okay, now what? Bink, run good, new pro. Villain now has 350-ish dollars behind. Obviously you raise, but do you shove or go smaller? You know, for value. In game, I got full house, the flush is real, I shove. Later, on a shove, I wonder what an actually competent type player would call with. Am I ever called by worse than uh, queens or eights? What am I targeting? Ace, king of hearts, and five five exactly? A smaller raise, even a click back to $300, feels more likely to extract value against his range. Results. Villain side calls and shows pocket aces with the ace of hearts. Even with that, I have to think he folds kings and maybe even aces without the highly relevant ace of hearts. If we go with that, we have six combos that beat us, seven that we beat, and the rest that fold. That really doesn't seem like the right ratio to shove. Okay. So let's go back through this. Uh, starting from preflop, I think you absolutely want to call this um, preflop, especially when you're this deep. So we're $700 effective against the old man coffee. Um, it's costing $25 to call on the button. Um, I think this is like not close that you want to call here. Uh, I agree that sevens like, I mean, against a really nitty player, your preflop equity is not great, but your postflop playability should be very, very good. Um, Having the button is a huge help. Having the potential to flop a set against a very strong range is a huge help. And you know, when you're this deep and you know that you're playing with a nitty player, I think there are also going to be opportunities to bluff. I mean, let's suppose this board instead of being eight seven five, we're like eight six five. You know, I think you have. So I mean, you've got an open-ended straight draw there, which is great. We could even make it. You can make eight six four or something. We just have a gut shot. But it's also the sort of board that's just like very scary for an overpair. And if you know this player is is really nitty, he's very rarely going to have anything stronger than an overpair. So if you can like bluff him off of an overpair, I mean, honestly, like I'm giving you you know a straight draw. <laughs> I don't think it's even necessary. Like when you have such such a clear idea of what the uh, opponent's range is and so much money behind, there's just a lot of opportunities to um, to put him in bad spots, whether or not you have a strong hand, right? Just you know, knowing roughly what your opponent's cards are is a pretty big advantage in poker for a variety of reasons, and that's one of the mistakes that nits are making. I mean, partly they're like missing out on potentially profitable opportunities by folding hands that they could make money with, but they're also, you know, by making it more obvious what kind of hand they have when they do enter the pot, they're also reducing the profitability of, um, of those hands by creating these kinds of opportunities for you. So, I mean, I think you can actually call pretty aggressively here on the button. Like, I would even be calling with stuff like 9-7 suited, which is a good deal weaker than 7s. Like, 9-6 suited might not be terrible. Uh, I, think, I think you don't need that good of a hand to call here because I think that your post-flop uh, equity realization is going to be so good. Um, and, I mean, some of that kind of comes down to, like, how comfortable are you recognizing and taking advantage of these opportunities? It, it's a skill like any other. But uh, the other good news here is you're not going to get re-raised very often at all. Right? Like, presumably the other players also know that this player is really tight, so the, you know, they're not going to be re-raising him very much. So you pretty much always get to see the flop for just this $25 investment. You're guaranteed to have the button. You're guaranteed to have a pretty good sense of uh, what at least villain one has. And there's a lot of money still behind 
so I fully agree with calling preflop. Um, and now, I mean, I'm going to be critical of some of Mekinen's thought processes, but I think they're, you know, and, and that's not to imply that uh, our correspondent has not had those same criticisms, uh, him or herself. Um, I think that the, you know, so one thing that they say is uh, the, the villain continuation bets uh, 60 and 85 on an 875 two-tone board into two callers. And this player says, obviously, that is obvious. I don't agree with that. Um, and I think too often continuation bets are just dismissed as meaningless. Like, oh, my opponent bet the flop. That doesn't mean anything. He was the preflop raiser. That means nothing. Or, you know, conversely, when, when uh, you yourself bet the flop and then you think, oh, you know, my opponent probably just thinks I'm continuation betting or something. Like, continuation bets are still meaningful. Continuation bets are typically not just any two cards in, in many situations, and this is certainly not a situation where I would expect the player to just be betting absolutely anything that he raised preflop with. Not to mention, like we already have a pretty good sense of that his preflop range is very strong to begin with. But you know, this kind of coordinated board with two callers, it's not obvious to me that if this player had ace king of spades, he would be betting the flop anyway. And betting you know, betting a pretty large size, sixty into eighty-five. I think it's telling us something that he chooses to bet here. It's not as meaningful as some of his later bets, but that's typically true. I mean, action earlier in the hand, you're getting less information from it than action later in the hand. And the less money that goes into the pot, the less information you're getting. So, you know, when a player raises the button, it's not meaningless. I mean, we don't have a lot of information. If the action just like folds to the button and the button raises, we don't have a lot of information about their hand. But still, I mean, that's probably enough to narrow them down to the top like 40 to 60 percent of the deck depending on who the player is uh, and that's that's meaningful i mean we're we're cutting that range in half based on the fact that they're choosing to raise the button that might not be as much concrete information as, as you would like you know that compared to the kind of information you have if a player raises under the gun or three bets or something like that you know in those cases you typically have a, a much a uh, more specific sense of, of what kinds of cards the player is likely to have but you know it, it's not the, the situations that a player can can take with a, a large portion of their range, it doesn't make them meaningless. Like it, it still is telling you something that he's choosing to bet this flop. Um, and I, I so I I would expect to see an overpair here pretty often. I mean I I think in order his most likely hands are overpairs, big draws, and then you know over cards without a draw, which very well may not even be betting in the first place. Um. And I think there's a more general problem here, which I know comes up a lot in these strategy segments, but y'all keep writing me these hands that don't reflect an understanding of this, so I'm going to keep saying it. Um, you really want to be thinking not just about the action you want your opponent to take, but about what hands they probably have and what actions those hands are likely to take. So, you know, when, when our correspondent says, you know, let's not scare him out. Maybe villain two will get frisky. None of that is specific to any particular hand. Now, if if our correspondent said, you know, I, I thought that he would fold an overpair to a raise, so I didn't raise, that kind of makes some sense to me. Uh, I mean, I'm still not sure I agree with the logic of it, but that at least is, is talking about how a player is going to play a specific hand. Right? But it's not just the case that, you know, any raise is, is necessarily going to scare a player out or that we would even... You know, like I think you also want to talk about well, what's the downside of scaring him out. Um, in, in this case, I think there is a downside. Like if the villain has a hand like Ace King of Spades, 
raising, I mean, I don't know if scare him out is still the language I would use, but like raising and causing him to fold ace king of spades, there is a clear downside to that, which is that, you know, the turn might be the king of clubs or something. And now because we caused him to fold ace king on the flop, we're not winning a bigger pot that we would have won if he'd hit that ace or the king on the turn. But I think like this is the kind of specificity that you want to have when you're thinking about your opponent's play. It's not just like, I don't want him to fold, so I didn't raise. It's, uh, you know, I didn't want him to fold this specific hand for this specific reason, and I thought that he would fold it. <laughs> or conversely, you know, I think he's not going to fold an overpair on the flop, and so that's why I'm raising. Like, it's not that easy to just get people to fold overpairs, especially nits, which is, I mean, this is a little weird, and this, this is going to become relevant in the, in the river analysis as well. But, um... My experience, especially with players who are not great uh, in, in this regard, is these players who are like super tight and you know, they'll play like one hand an hour, when they finally get that hand, they're not looking to fold it. You know, like this guy's been waiting for aces for a long time. He finally got them. He's not planning on folding into a single raise on the flop. <laughs> I mean, that's just not. Um, you know that's not fun. Like ultimately, this is this is clearly not a professional poker player. This is someone who's here for fun. Uh, now, fun for him, you know, seems to involve not taking a lot of risk. But at the same time, like he is there to play poker, and he has not played much poker in the last hour because he hasn't been dealt aces, and he finally got those aces. You know, like I think if anything, he's probably going to be more likely than he should to continue with the hand. Um, so I think that you know if if you break this opponent's range down and you say most likely holding is overpair, second most likely holding is flush draw, third most likely a holding, um, which is to say a fairly unlikely holding, is two unpaired cards without a draw. Well, I think you definitely want to raise into the overpair. I mean, if an overpair is going to fold, it's going to fold. But like it, the only way an overpair can get stronger is if it improves to a better set, right? So, I mean, if, if he's going to be reluctant to put money into this pot with an overpair, then you know that's true whether or not you you raise. I don't think raising you know is necessarily like um, you know it, it may not be costing you money against the player who's going to shut down with an overpair anyway. You're not uh, you're not costing yourself money by by raising even if he does fold it because he wasn't going to keep putting money in anyway. But I think he probably is. So I think you know, against an overpair we would want to raise. Against a flush draw we would prefer to raise than to call. Um, I mean, the flush draw probably won't fold, but you're a pretty big favorite against the flush draw, so getting some more money into the pot is is good. Um, and then against Ace King of Spades, we would prefer not to raise. So we do have a conflicting um, agenda here, right? We have there's some hands in the opponent's range we'd like to raise against. There's other hands we'd prefer not to raise against. And this is the entire point of doing value targeting, is to help you identify which part of the villain's range is the most important part to pay attention to. And in this case, I think it is the overpairs. I think there's a lot of scenarios where, I, I mean, first, I think they're the most likely holding for the villain. And secondly, I think it makes a big difference what we do. Uh, I think if we don't raise now, like this is the best chance we're going to get to win more money from overpairs. There's a lot of turn cards. You know, as it happened, the villain had pocket aces with the ace of hearts. So the fact that the turn was a heart didn't slow him down. But if he had like black aces, that might have been a scary turn card for him. Or, you know, a nine is a scary turn card. Uh, even a jack, it makes a, you know, nine, ten gets there for a straight. There's a fair number, of, like this is a dynamic board. Um, if the villain has queens or kings, an ace on the river is, uh, on the turn is going to be a scary card. There's a lot of ways that your opponent's overpair could get weaker. And again, like the only way it can get stronger is if it improves to beat you, which isn't going to be good. So you want to get that money in while your opponent's overpair is still a fairly strong hand. The longer you wait, the less likely it is that that overpair is still going to be a hand that your opponent wants to put money into the pot with.
So I think you know we've identified an overpair as both a very likely holding for the opponent and a holding where your choice of whether to call or raise makes a big difference. Uh, like I think by just calling, you do potentially cost yourself a lot of money against an overpair. So yeah, even if the trade-off is we cause him to fold ace king of spades, I think that's a trade-off that's worth making. Right, everything in poker is risk reward. If we chose to call, the reward would be keeping ace-king of spades in the pot. The risk would be winning less money from hands like draws and, and overpairs that would have called a raise. Um, and then the, the, the reward of raising is we, we win that extra money from draws and from overpairs, and we lose, you know, potentially, so we lose some potential winnings from a hand like ace-king of spades, the strawing dead, um, and, and, you know, maybe would keep putting money into the pot. But I think when we do that risk reward calculation, it comes out pretty clearly in favor of, of raising. So it, it, you know, the decision process is not as simple as, oh, I don't want to scare him out, so I just call. Right? Scaring him out is the risk, but then you have to consider also what's the reward. Okay, so we go to the turn, $205 in the pot, queen of hearts, so the board is five of hearts, seven of hearts, eight of diamonds, queen of hearts, our hero has pocket sevens, villain bets 90. Um, and you know, this is like, it's not one of the very worst cards. Um, I mean, there are a number of cards that would be at least as bad as this one. Like, I think this is a roughly average turn card, maybe slightly worse than average. But the fact that, you know, the, the hero's response is immediately, you know, oh, that's, uh, that's not what I wanted to see. Like, you know, acting like this is a, a pretty big disaster, like that's all the more reason to raise the flop. I mean, if, if a queen of hearts is... Like, there's going to be a lot of cards that are as bad or worse than the Queen of Hearts as a turn. So, like, if there's that many turn cards where you're going to feel like you just lost a bunch of value, um, then, you know, that's, that's all the more proof that you should have raised the flop. Um, so, I mean, villain betting again, I, I think at this point there's... I, I don't see a lot of argument for raising at this point. I think... Um, you know, the aces or kings without a heart may or may not come along to a raise. Uh, I mean, if we chose not to raise the flop because we didn't want to scare out aces, I certainly wouldn't. You know, I think that the turn is, has only gotten scarier for it. If the opponent has aces or kings, you know, the, the turn has only made the board scarier for him. So I don't think there's really a case for raising the turn if we didn't raise the flop. Um, you know, your hand has gotten weaker. Your target hand has gotten weaker. Um I think I would just call at this point. I mean, yeah, the downside is sometimes the river is a fourth heart, but that's really only a problem in the event that the villain had a hand with a heart that would have folded on the turn. Um, I don't think aces or kings with with a heart is folding the turn. Um, now, you're getting value from those hands by raising, but you're not protecting against the draw because they're going to see the river anyway. Uh, the hand that you know maybe could bet fold the turn if your opponent has something like ace king with just one heart, you know, this this player may fold that to a raise. But I don't know how likely that is. I mean, that would require him to have bet the flop with just two over cards and a backdoor draw. I think that's kind of unlikely for this player to you know to bet to bet this flop into two people when they just have like ace king with the king of hearts or something. That doesn't seem super likely to me. And again, that's like there's not that many combinations of those hands in the first place. Uh, I, I think at this point you probably do just want to call. Like you've you've already lost a lot of the value of your hand by just calling the flop and at this point i think your hand is like borderline not strong enough to raise for value um so the river five of clubs final board five of hearts seven of hearts eight of diamonds queen of hearts five of clubs 
Hero has pocket sevens for sevens full of fives. 385 in the pot, and the villain bets 150. Um, so we started the hand with 700. I think the villain only has about 400 behind. Yeah, I mean, post-flop, the villain has put uh, $300 in the pot, and if he only had 700 to start the hand, then... I mean, I don't think... Yeah, he says villain has 350-ish behind. So, I mean, I think... And I don't see how you could do something other than shove. Like, and, you know, min raises already to 300. He only has 350 behind. Like, I mean, I guess if you had some reason to believe that he's just, you know, the words all in are going to be very intimidating for him, such that he's, you know, significantly more likely to call a raise to 300 than a raise to 350, that's fine. But, I mean, with such a low stack-to-pot ratio, I don't really see... I mean, I don't see any reasonable case for doing anything other than an all-in. Like, there's no hand where you should be, like, raising to 300 and then folding if your opponent goes all-in for 350. So, I I mean, I don't see a lot of point to having a a smaller raise size. Um, I also, I mean, this is, I guess, just a... uh, like a pet peeve of, of mine, uh, and and it might have been a little bit tongue in cheek from from our correspondent in the first place. But um, when they say you know do you shove or go smaller for value, um, you know a small bet does like value bets don't have to be small. It's not the idea. Like I think a lot of people kind of use this terminology that way. Like oh, I think if the villain had a strong hand, he would have raised for value instead of shoving. Like when you have strong hands, you should be trying to put more money into the pot. Big bets. You should be more inclined to make big bets with strong hands, as should your opponents. Uh, I think a lot of people have this idea kicking in their head that like big bets get folds and small bets get called, and that's not how poker works. Right? If it were, you would just make big bets with all your weak hands and win every pot. And of course, that doesn't happen because it's not so easy to just cause people to fold. When you have good hands, you want to put a lot of money into the pot. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes your opponents fold. That doesn't necessarily mean that you did anything wrong. You know, you need to choose what part of their range you want to target and then you need to try to get the maximum from it you know as i said i think this player you know unless you feel like you're you're literally behind their range where you don't want to put more money into the pot um and even doing the the combination counting the sort of pessimistic combination counting that um that our our correspondent does and, and determining you know i'm losing the six combos and beating seven like I mean, you still want to get as much money into the pot as you can uh, in that scenario, even though it's kind of thin, like you are a favorite, and the more money that goes in, the higher your profit is going to be, even though there's variance associated with that. Um, Now, the reason to raise smaller would be if you thought it was going to expand his calling range, that he might call with some hands that wouldn't call a shove, but they would call a raise to 300. Uh, And I think if if a shove were larger, if we were talking about we have a choice of either, you know, raising to 300 or going all in for 1,000, that's something that might really influence the villain's calling range and it could be worth debating which way to go with that um but i think in this case where it's you know either raised to 300 or go all in for 350 i mean i just i would never do anything other than either call or you know i would see my three options as call fold or go all in i wouldn't even like consider doing anything else with any hand um yeah so i mean only if you determine his range was so strong that you didn't that, you know, like if it were the other way around, if it was that you were losing to seven combos and beating six, you know, that would be a case for for a calling rather than raising. Um, but I don't, I don't see that being the case here. Uh, so yeah, I guess the you know the central point is you absolutely want to call pre-flop. You have um, big advantage, and I would call with much weaker hands than sevens here. I, I'm expecting a big post-flop advantage with position and a lot of money behind and a clear idea of the villain's range, and then. Um, 
I want to raise the flop. After that, I think uh, the hero's play is, well, I mean, the hero did call pre-flop, but um, yeah, I, I think like the hero's play and thinking on, on later streets in-game uh, work, works for me. And I think the big mistake is just not raising the flop. So thank you, Mackin, for uh, writing in. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, it does sound like I don't know if there's uh, if this is within your control. There, it sounds like uh, someone like kind of like loudly walking down a hallway or something behind you. That's definitely not me. Is that you, Nate? Uh, it was me. Now it's not. Oh, okay. I just assumed Matt was somewhere in the halls of power. Yeah. I know. I, I'm in the store. I'm in the storage room of my house where my makeshift home office is. As uh, <laughs> five people in my home are often on the on Zoom calls at once for these days, so oh, I'm wow. I'm, yeah. I'm hidden in the bowels of my own home. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice and quiet right now, so just pray my daughter doesn't start practicing her saxophone. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for for joining us, Matt. I don't know if there's much in, in the news to talk about, but it's always good to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good to see. It's good to talk to you guys. Not, not a lot has happened in politics in the last week. It's funny. I, I, I said something like I said something on Twitter. Must have been right around New Year's, where I was just like, I said something like, "All you can hope at this point is that everything that's going to become memorable in the Trump administration has already happened." Yeah, and. I Turns out I was just <laughs> couldn't be more wrong. In fact, the thing probably that is going to be most remembered. Don't, don't, that don't jinx it any further, Matt. <laughs> yeah, right. We still have another 150 hours or whatever for things to go off the rails further. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, like you're never going to be um, expecting like a uh, physical assault on the United States Capitol. But obviously, like that is going to be the um, probably the defining memory of the Trump administration, which is weird because, right, it, that it's 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 in many ways sort of like the denouement of the whole thing. Um, after four years of sort of politics that was outside the norm, the biggest thing comes right at the end, which you know I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, I guess that's like within, I, I don't want to say like I saw this specific thing coming, but I think the idea that like, I mean, that, I guess that was always my concern anyway, is that like desperation is sort of what uh, what drives people to do the, the craziest stuff. I mean, maybe he, we would have thought he would have gotten to that like desperate point before now or, or sort of like the, the general like uh, right wing zeitgeist would have got to, to that desperate point before now. But I mean, I guess that makes sense to me that it is sort of like the mounting desperation leads to uh, crazier stuff. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, like the actual uh, insurrection at the Capitol is the craziest thing. But really, I think, you know, if you say, well, what was the Trump administration like before the election and after the election? The entire lame duck period entered sort of a different magnitude of banana land um, such that everything that came up to the election seems almost like closer to uh, a normal American presidency and that after the election, it just completely went off the rails such that I think if you sort of 
objectively looked at this 10 years from now and you thought about the lame duck period of the Trump administration, you would say, yeah, what happened on January 6th is much more conceivable in the context of the lame duck than it even was in the context of the regular Trump presidency. Hmm. So, I mean, I, at least we've always billed you as the, the, your shtick is sort of having this, uh, you know, game political or uh, game theoretical, like real politic kind of uh, analysis of the, the behavior of, of political actors. I mean, when you refer to stuff as like banana land or off the rails, I mean, is that do you think there is a, a, a like a, a set of incentives where that behavior makes sense? Or I mean, do you think it's either like people being bad at the game or people being untilled? Mm, well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, sort of the the wall that was completely demolished down after the election, I think, was at least in theory was the wall sort of how American politics and politics in the stable democracies tends to operate within sort of like the most broad liberal consensus. Right. Like just think about like a liberal consensus at the most broad level. I'm not saying these democracies are perfect or sort of like ideal liberal democracies, but they operate in the context of, in some sense, the rule of law. Like even if you're going to screw people, you're going to do it through the process of the law uh, and sort of the stuff that's outside the boundaries of that, um, mainly sort of political violence as a tactic of either intimidation uh, or sort of just raw power way to get your way is sort of outside those boundaries. And that was certainly the shift we saw last week. Um, and I don't think sort of the most important piece of it uh, from the point of view of having sort of a liberal consensus about how the rule of law works was necessarily like that the Capitol was occupied for an afternoon. I think the most important piece of it uh, going forward or even in the moment was that you have, uh, you know, uh, Republican members of Congress who were articulating that they had like personal fears of violence that were influencing how they were going to behave within the game. Um, and that's not something you usually account for when you're thinking about politics uh, as a set of incentives and a structured game, the way you think about monopoly. Um, if, if you're, if you're playing a board game uh, and you're just trying to understand the rules, the, you don't really consider like whether your opponent's going to punch you in the face uh, as a reason to act or not act. Um, you might, if you're out like a um, underground poker game, Right. And we can think of stories uh, that we've all heard about people who have to think about sort of like how you get out of the game with the money as part of the game. But we usually don't bring that to the table uh, when we're analyzing sort of politics in the stable democracies. Obviously, it's on the edges and there's certainly things that, you know, do involve sort of intimidation and violence. But at the national level with sort of congressional decision making or, or the running of our elections, we don't it's usually on the periphery instead of front and center. So how much work is the word consensus doing in, in when we say liberal consensus? Like, is it, um, I mean, do you think there is a set of institutional constraints that makes it irrational for people to engage in, in political violence or that has made it uh, irrational for at least for the like, you know, prominent actors like uh, Congress people or the president to, um, to sort of in encourage political violence? Or do you think that there was sort of a consensus that was um, kind of making that unthinkable uh, in a way that maybe it, it might have been rational for people to do it, but they didn't do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think, in, I mean, in, in general, I think sort of the, the key to the stability of the, of the liberal democracies is that if you try and go outside the boundaries and you try and take away the state's monopoly on violence, you are going to lose. Right. Um, or at least that's the hope. Uh, and the fact that you're going to lose means that if you consider the game at all repeated, 
um, or, you know, or have a longer time horizon in the immediate short term, then sort of your payoff from being violent uh, reduces very quickly if the end result is that you're going to end up in federal prison and uh, federal prison and your political uh, goals are not going to be met. Right. That's not that's a strong disincentive. Um, so when can this collapse? Well, one is if you don't have a long time horizon <laughs> or two is if you already think you might be going to federal prison. Um, all of a sudden you become sort of in a situation where the payoffs might be different. Now I'm not saying that's what happened. Um, there's also the possibility people are just acting irrationally. Um, and we, we have to accept that that's a real part of how these things operate too. But, you know, if the, if, if you're staring down the, the, the barrel of a gun yourself at that point, th there's no reason not to sort of, sort of, sort of fight in that sense. And I, you know, it, the other question is how much of this is sort of like calculated versus how much of this is sort of, um, mob psychology. Right. And mob sociology, like I, I, I really think what happened to a lot of elite Republican actors here was that they thought the liberal consensus would hold. And so that they didn't think there was sort of any sort of general cost or personal cost to pretending an election was completely fraudulently stolen. Uh, and instead, what they did was they whipped up a violent mob that now has overtaken them sort of uh, within the game. Um, and that's a whole different way to think about it. But I don't think on November 8th when, you know, you, I think a lot of Republicans were not being sincere in any sense. They were being cynical um, when they were when they were saying, oh, well, you know, Trump, just give him room to, to vent or whatever. And, and then they started picking up things like, well, maybe this actually was stolen. Right. And started going through those motions. I don't think they actually believed it. But I also don't think they believe that the goal here was to create a violent outburst that would somehow change the end result of the election. I don't think that was the play. Um, I don't think their goal was to keep Donald Trump in the presidency. I think their goal was longer term goal, which is don't annoy these voters who, who want to believe this. Um, and you can see that that has sort of spillover unintended consequences. And one of those is that you might create a violent mob um, and violent mobs are, are tough to control. I guess, it, I mean, it, in terms of like, what were the incentives for people to go along with the, the narrative that the uh, election had been stolen? I mean, part of what seemed to me to be the right. case also was just an attempt preemptively to, um, I, I mean, I guess just to sort of like set up, set themselves up to object to like the incoming Democratic administration and to sure. sort of cast dispersion sure. on, you know, like, well, you're not even here legitimately in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um uh, that is certainly true. On the other hand, I do think there's no way around uh, the fact that the linchpin actor here is the president and that if the president had conceded the election, we would not be standing where we are right now, uh, because if he concedes the election, then there's no reason for other members of the sort of the elected cadre of Republicans or interests surrounding them to feel like they need to keep up some charade about the election in order not to annoy voters who are more loyal to the president than to the party. If the president of the United States has the sort of undying loyal following of 35% of Republicans, so 15 or 20% of the population, and he's saying the election was stolen, and you're a member of Congress who knows that you will lose those 15% or they will turn on you, if uh, if you declare that the election was fine, well, that's a dilemma. I mean, it's not a moral dilemma. It's pretty clear what you should do from a moral point of view. But from a pure political calculation, there's sort of like a totally reasonable expectation that you just go along and, and humor the sky and, and, and in two months it'll all be over and you move on. And you get the side benefit that there's going to be people agitated about the Biden administration because they'll think it's fake. And really, the externalities of this is what people missed is that – 
you know, on the extreme tail end, the externality is that you might get people start firing guns uh, and you might not have any control over what you sort of create from doing this. But I don't I don't like you can see a rationality to any Republican elected official who didn't want to lose their seat in Congress and underestimated sort of the negative consequences of doing this for the system. And frankly, like we don't necessarily expect the players within the system to even care about the system. Um, Corporations try to destroy each other all the time. They don't believe in the free market. Um, and they're trying to destroy each other. And politicians, uh, it's not great when they behave that way, but the system doesn't need politicians uh, to believe in sort of like the democratic process as long as the system holds. Uh, and most people just assume no matter how badly they behave within it, they're not systemically disrupting American democracy. And it turns out when you do certain things, you can systemically disrupt it. But ultimately, I don't, I mean, I, I, I think the Republicans who have maintained the straight are bad actors, uh, but I don't think uh, they take the bulk of the blame. The bulk of the blame is on the president. Um, uh, he could have conceded the election, um, and he didn't. And then so everything downstream from that is largely, in my, my view, his fault first. What do you think needs to happen uh, in order to like send the message to future political actors of, you know, this this kind of strategy will not be effective, like it will be a negative EV strategy? Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we're on sort of a we're on sort of a uh, event horizon here that we don't have any, you know, I, I, I mean, obviously, this this is this goes on repeatedly in other countries. And you can learn a lot from other countries. But this hasn't sort of been anything in my lived lifetime in the United States that we can compare to. Certainly, we've had enormous outbursts of political violence in the United States. Uh, throughout history and moments of sort of elite political violence where assassination and uh, widespread mass bombings, you know, it's it's actually true in the late 60s and early 70s, you had hundreds, if not thousands of bombs being set off politically motivated per year. Uh, And we haven't reached that scenario. Um, But how you sort of bring this back, in, in, in my view, you know, from a from a sort of substantive point of view, the best thing that could happen here would be for if Congress had, you know, unambiguously impeached and convicted Trump and removed him from office immediately. Um, obviously, that's not going to happen. Uh, individual players have different incentives than that. But severely punishing sort of the incitement of this is the obvious sort of game theoretic way to put it down. Um, but the other is to make individuals lose. And I think, you know, I would have approached sort of the end of the insurrection at the Capitol differently. I would have cuffed every single person in that building. Um, and the Capitol Police chose not to, and they have their reasons. And we'll find out if those are good reasons or bad reasons. But severely punishing everyone who took part in it is start of the solution. Um, I, punishing the politicians who, who fan the flames is a much tougher case because, again, even something like this, you can look at this and be like, this was a major insurrection, borderline sort of attempted coup led by the president. But when you're weighing your vote choice in two years for a member of Congress, like you can disqualify him over this, but if they're not defeated in a primary, every individual's got to weigh that against how they feel substantively about the tax rate, about universal health care, about business regulation, about gun con- you know, and so I don't expect this sort of from the basic nature of democracy. The market is probably not going to punish this as much as it should. Um, and that's sort of definitely a blind spot of democracy is that this is just one issue and it's an existential issue, but it wasn't sort of like an existential problem this time. Biden is going to 
undoubtedly calm things down at least a notch because it's impossible not to at this point. Um, and people may be ready to just fight about budgets and, uh, and, and, and race relations and voting rights back within the liberal consensus. Um, and that's, you know, dangerous, but, you know, democracy is nothing if not muddling through. And so you do what you can. Um, and I, I hope at this point that I, you know, I'm not generally a big fan of sort of criminal prosecution of political leaders. I think opposition leaders need some space to operate that you would not afford to a normal citizen simply because you don't want the incumbent power of the government harassing them. Um, but in this case, I, I don't think, you know, it's avoidable that, you know, the Justice Department has to think about um, going after some prosecutions if it's found out that people were actively sort of encouraging this who are political leaders or, you know, if if it comes out more that this was sort of arranged or coordinated at all at the White House with sort of criminally prosecuting the, the president. What I one thing that I've heard Ben Sass say is that there's just a talent deficit in Washington right now, that there's just a failure to get skilled lawmakers to Washington. Um, and when I hear people on Twitter talk about politics, it's a lot of people say things like, I need somebody who believes this or that, who 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 wants to support this or that policy. And, and I don't hear many people saying things like, I need somebody who's good at being a legislator the way I want a baker to be good at making bread, yeah. regardless of mm -hmm. what kind of bread they want to make. Like, like we just have a talent gap here. Uh, how much of all this is just explicable as, you know, you know, those clowns in Washington not being very good at their jobs from a position neutral point of view? I'm, you know, obviously I can't, I can't like disprove what Senator Sass is saying. Um, it's not typically my approach to thinking about these things. I don't think um, previous classes of American politicians had, you know, naturally a much higher level of statesmanship to it um, necessarily. And I do think that, um, I do think that even if we could prove that it's not clear how you adjust the incentives to get there. One thing that's true for sure is that when parties are stronger and more sort of uh, polarized like they are now, um, the leaders tend to become more powerful, which means the backbenchers tend to become less powerful, which means the type of person who likes to hang around Congress isn't really sort of the go-getter, smart entrepreneur, but instead it's the person who's willing to like sit around and be bored and be a party soldier. Uh, and so that has sort of impacts, right? And so people like Will Hurd retire from Congress or Justin Amash walk away from Congress and you get instead sort of more sort of hacky party disciplined people who are just going to listen to leaders. But I'm not sure that there's like a huge leadership gap per se right now. Like I can't, I can't sit here and be like, well, the leaders were better in this time period. Um, I think there's a tremendous leadership deficit in the White House right now. And I think that's a huge problem. Um you know, as a class, I don't know, but I don't think there's any debate that that Trump has completely abdicated sort of the powerful leadership role of the presidency really since the virus took hold. He didn't have much of it before, but my read on 2020 is that he basically blew from a leadership perspective every crisis that came upon him. Um, COVID for sure. And now this insurrection even more so. And, you know, people say, well, he incited it. How are you going to how are you going to be a leader against it if you incited it? Well, he doesn't say he incited it. 
right? And if you think about any president of the United States, like the leadership role of these things is to find like solutions, like be a statesman, figure out the right policy, and then lead the public to accepting that policy. Um, the opposite, sort of the classic sort of legislative just sort of interest method is to find out what's popular, what the public wants, and then just give it to them as the policy <laughs> and sell the policy. Um, and that's not leadership. That's something different. It's representation, but it's not leadership. And it's hard for me to picture any other president. Presidents I've disliked tremendously, right, in the past, not being down at the Capitol Thursday morning, or not Thursday morning, they were still there Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon after the place had been secured, walking around with leaders of Congress and Capitol Police officers surveying the wreckage, and then, and then, giving a bold speech that talked about their assessment of the situation, what went wrong, what needs to be done, and how they're going to make it happen. And right now, instead of that, you have a vacuum. Like, literally, the Trump administration has done nothing. We have one public briefing from a, uh, you know, U.S. attorney and a, a assistant director, head of a field office for the FBI in the D.C. area. And that's just, to me, the administration, it's not the wrong people in Washington. It's just no one's even trying to lead. Um, and if you want to move the public, you know, and then the leadership necessary is obviously important, but it's mostly got to come from the White House. And that's been a big problem in the, in the Trump administration. And, I, and, you know, people say, well, Trump should be removed from office. And I, I think I would have been totally on board if they removed him right when that electoral count vote ended, if the House just stayed in session, impeached him, good, he's gone. But his behavior subsequent to the insurrection, to me, is almost as damning, if not more damning, than his behavior beforehand. Um, there's a, you know, who knows what Trump's thinking in his head or his heart, but I it's not out of the realm of possibility that he did not expect people to storm the Capitol and try and kill people. Right. Like it's totally plausible that he was just as blindsided as other Republican elites about violence actually happening. Um, but afterwards he completely abdicated his job as president um, to be a crisis leader. Like, and it's just, it's a rerun of COVID just in a much smaller time span. And so that's, you know, Sass might be right, but the leadership dilemma right now is much more acute and that's, we don't have a leader at pres as president. So I feel like the, the worst case scenario explanation for um, why we've kind of heard so little from uh, not just the, the White House, but like law enforcement agencies and, and whatnot yeah, is DOJ. Or right. You know, that, that um, I mean, the, 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 like the paranoid explanation is, well, you know, there were powerful people who were kind of involved in uh, at yeah. least like turning a blind eye to this or coordinating it or, you know, depending on how, how paranoid you want to get about it. And I think the like right. the, the best case scenario explanation would be um even if there were some people who are involved, like, I mean, that would make it all the more important than for the like people who actually were diligently trying to like investigate yeah. and prosecute people involved to sort of like be quiet and careful of how they're, how they're going about it. Um, where do you land on that spectrum? Uh, I think that, uh, I, I don't think there were powerful people involved in this, you know, throughout DOJ or DOD that sort of kept sort of the, um, capital from being properly guarded. I think more, you know, that may have been true with the White House, but again, I still don't think it was like coordinated. If there had been a meeting <laughs> where they had talked about this, you would know about it by now. Um, that's sort of, it's impossible to keep a secret like that, I think, for very long in Washington. I, I think the post hoc, you know, I, I think the FBI right now is doing a, a quite good job based on the information we do have. Um, they seem to be diligently pursuing arrests of hundreds of people. Um, but you know, this all starts with the president and, uh, you know, if people in these jobs at DOJ think they're going to be fired the minute they go give a press conference, then they have some incentive not to give a press conference. I, you know, some of the, 
some of the scariest stuff about this is the idea that the president doesn't really have control of the executive branch. And I see so many people joke on Twitter, you know, about how, oh, it's better if Trump doesn't have control of the executive branch. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> like, I thought it was terrifying when there were reports that Pelosi, you know, was openly saying, not even reports, she was saying that she had spoken to the military leaders about not listening to the president. Um, and that's not good. <laughs> right. Um you know, and you had that letter before January 6th, it might have been on like the second or third, where all the former defense secretaries were sort of reaffirming sort of the uh, peaceful transfer power. And then after the insurrection, you had all the chairman of the Joint Chiefs issue a directive saying, you know, that the military supported the peaceful transfer power. Those aren't good signals, right? The fact that those things exist are terrible signals. Um, and we need a uh, executive branch, particularly the military and law enforcement that are going to listen to the president. Um, and, uh, you know, if the president is, if you're in a situation where you're the speaker of the house and you don't believe, uh, the president has control over these entities of the government, um, you don't go to those entities of the government, right. And, and tell them, don't listen to this crazy president. You, you, you remove the president. Um, and you know, the biggest threat right now, obviously people worry about sort of in the paranoid fantasy is Trump starting like a nuclear war or something or some crazy war. But like the second biggest threat is like China deciding he doesn't have any control over the military and then just attacking Taiwan. Right. And, uh, that's not a good situation. And, uh, even if it's just a week to go, right, it's not like, uh, out of the realm of possibility that other bad actors around the world are going to take advantage of the fact that, our military leaders right now don't trust the commander in chief. Um, and, uh, and that creates a horrible situation. I don't have like a, you know, I, two things to say about sort of like law enforcement being quote unquote in on it. Uh, one is I don't think that's true at the top. I don't think like the political, I don't think the director of the FBI or the head of DOJ is like encouraging this or wanted this to happen or knew about this and didn't stop it. But the second is, you know, governments around the world have to deal with the reality that there's going to be people in the security services who are sympathetic to violent revolutionaries. Um, and we don't typically think about that in the American case. Um, but, you know, it's sort of layers in the background of America all the time. Um, it's no different than sort of uh, racial disparities in police treatment of citizens in the United States, just a sort of a broader level. And you have to expect that in, you know, a country where, you know, there's a 15 or 20 percent of people who have this uh, radical loyalty to the president um, and then some massive subset of them, you know, very tiny amount who are willing to can, you know, condone violence um, that you're going to have people just like that in the security services, be it the Capitol Police or the FBI or the military. Uh, that's just reality. Um, and it's a reality that is totally overcomable and you still watch out for it. And so, you know, how you deal with that is something that I think the United States federal government has not spent a ton of time thinking about because of the long-term stability of our democracy, but it's a reality we have to deal with going forward. Um, and again, it's not, you know, is it a big deal going forward? I don't know. Uh, is it a big deal this week that we make sure there's not another massive explosion <laughs> of violence? Yes, it absolutely is. Um, and again, it all starts at the top. Um, this is, there's, there's nowhere to lay the blame for the, federal government's response except at the feet of the president for this. How well do you think uh, Biden has, has handled, or what, what do you think his role should be in um, sort of responding to this? Good question. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I don't know. He is a, you know, obviously, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't know. I don't know how prominent he should be. 
and I don't know what his sort of, I, I really don't know. I, I don't have any reason to criticize what he's done. Um, I do think there are incentives for the Biden campaign and transition team and Biden himself to have been um, a little less critical of the president in general during the lame duck, just because they know if they run out the clock, they'll get the administration and they can sort of like forget about Trump. Um, Biden's entire sort of persona and his political being is about sort of compromise within sort of a very fluid liberal consensus, right? And so I, I, you know, Biden is an interesting figure to take charge at the moment because if Biden can do his Biden thing, you can imagine lots of great outcomes. You can also imagine someone like Biden be completely stuck in the mud trying to deal with a political system that is a generation past uh, the one in which he operates best in. Um, in terms of the instant, uh, I think Biden has to walk a fine line. I, I think it's, you know, obviously totally fine for him to be extremely critical of how the government's handling that. On the other hand, one of the basic truisms of these transfers of power is that we have one president at a time. And Biden can't, in my view, try to substitute himself for the president in terms of trying to direct government action. Uh, I don't think that's a good way to go. Um, if, 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 if Biden thinks that's a necessary case, then what he should be doing is he should be leaning on the congressional leaders or the vice president to remove the president from office. Biden shouldn't be trying to direct the Department of Justice or the Department of Defense, nor should they be listening to him. What about trying to have a lower profile inauguration so that that doesn't create another kind of potential flashpoint for violence? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, that was going to happen anyway because of COVID. You know, we weren't going to have 600,000 people on the mall next week. Um, so it was already going to be scaled back. I, I think that these sorts of things, uh, I think, create massive disagreement. I do think there's something, you know, you're going to hear lots of people say, well, you know, Biden shouldn't, you know, change this stuff up because of what a bunch of terrorists did. Right. That's just giving into their demands. But, you know, I think there's a there's a realism to it. Now, if you've seen any pictures from the Capitol right now, like I've seen the Capitol on like State of the Union night and it feels like a fortress. I've never seen anything like what it looks like now. Um, my guess is that any attempted violence in Washington in the next week or week and a half is going to fizzle extremely quickly. I mean, there's literally like tens of thousands of uniformed soldiers with guns, big guns hanging out um, on Capitol Hill and throughout Washington. And that's like nothing I've ever seen, not even close. And so the actual sort of like physical safety of the inauguration is not something like that I think is a big deal. And uh, to be perfectly honest, like I think one mistake people made with the insurrection in terms of how they evaluated it, because I spent so much time in that building and I've never felt unsafe there. So it was like, it was very disconcerting for me to see that building stormed, but it was like a tactical choice by the Capitol police to allow the building to be stormed. Um, people keep saying, even senators keep saying, how could they have stormed the building? But the Capitol police let them like they could have started shooting people outside um, and I think somebody made a tactical decision, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, to not start shooting people outside. Because uh, mm -hmm. if you've seen the video of, of when, when the woman gets shot uh, in the speaker's lobby, which is it's absolutely horrifying to me because my, my old office was about 30 seconds from that spot. And uh, I've walked by there so many times. But in that video, you can see that as soon as the plainclothes police officer inside the speaker's lobby pulls out the gun, the protesters, the rioters get very concerned. And when it fires, they are absolutely terrified and head the other direction. Um, it wouldn't have taken 
many gunshots outside to scare the rioters. The problem is, would you have ended up doing something that ultimately is worse? Um, they made a security decision to not, you know, defend the building with deadly force, to just defend the members with deadly force. Um, and you can argue or disagree about that decision, but it was definitely a decision. If they wanted to keep them out of the building, they could have started killing people outside. Um, but I don't think, I, I, I kind of think they made a smart decision. Right. If they ended up killing a couple dozen protesters or more outside and a bunch of cops died, I'm not sure how that's necessarily a better outcome, particularly because there's a lot of people who are outside during the protest who weren't breaking the law. Um, God forbid you kill someone who was standing behind the barricades where they were supposed to be standing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and and in some ways, like, you know, when you when, if you come up with your paranoid theories about what's going on here, some people come up with like a, um, you know, theory that Trump wanted to do this because it would help him maintain power. Like somehow they convinced Congress not to uh, remove, you know, not, not to vote for Biden. I don't think so. I think a better paranoid theory is that Trump was looking to create a whole bunch of martyrs. Right. Um, And uh, you know, if, uh, if you're looking for a whole bunch of martyrs, you could do a lot worse than having some of your supporters dead on the Capitol, you know, on the front lawn of the Capitol. And so if there's a paranoid conspiracy, I can imagine is that some people wanted you know, violence to erupt outside the building where people weren't particularly breaking the law. And so I think about that, you know, with inauguration, like they don't need to defend the inauguration. No one is going to like overrun inauguration. It's just not going to happen. Um, and certainly not going to happen now. Uh, whether there's going to be other violence in the city, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I would think that in Washington, it's going to be surprisingly pacified. I don't know what's going to happen in state capitals if people are organizing things like this, but um, I, I suspect that there may be some skirmishes somewhere, but I don't think you can see anything like you saw on January 6th. So you mentioned that you've uh, been talking to a lot of reporters lately. Um, and my own experience of, of talking to reporters has always been in sort of trivial context, either you know, explaining something about poker or explaining something about debate. And in both cases, like it was pretty clear uh, that the reporters were just sort of like wanted a quote and weren't particularly interested in like actually understanding the issue or like any attempt on my part to say like I might not be the best person to talk to about this. Like they, you know, they were just sort yeah. of ticking a box. Um, I'd like to think that on a, on a subject like this, there's more interest in trying to like use your expertise to in, in addition to getting a quote for a story to actually like enhance their own understanding of, of the issue so that they can write more cogently about it themselves. Have you found that to be the case? You know, it's weird because I, I mean, I don't, ha- I don't have a lot of expertise in like um, uh, unstable democracies, right. And how they're proceeding. And so when we're talking about that sort of stuff, the expertise I do have this week that I can talk to you about is like, well, I know the physical layout of the Capitol. I know what security is like at the Capitol. I had, you know, I was the staffer in charge of funding for the Capitol Police budget so I can speak to those sorts of things. And the floor procedure, I have an expertise too. And there, I do find a mix of the two. Some reporters are literally just looking for a quote. Um, and sometimes I just say that up front. I'm like, you, you know, is there this particular thing you want to quote for, right? Like some, some, you know, for some appeal to authority sort of like part of the story. And that's true, been true a little bit this week. But a lot of people are just interested in some of the technical knowledge I have about floor procedure and what Congress could do within the realm of impeachment and things like that and getting out of their adjournments Um, or just wanted to take my take on sort of capital security from someone who had worked in the building for for a a long time. But um, I, I don't have any like particular expertise except what I can divine from my experiences and my other expertise about sort of like. Democracies. Oh, there's my there's my daughter practicing her saxophone. Hold on, let me see if I, 
Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about reporters and like dealing with yeah. that stuff. I, I mean, and so it's interesting. I I've been talking to more reporters this week than really any time I can remember. And um, you know, the, the thing about reporters is that there are nodes of information in situations like this too, because they talk to so many people. And so you're constantly learning things when you talk to them too. Um, but it, it, it makes me very sort of interested in something I'm totally ignorant about, which is how information moves around sort of the political ecosystem in this sense. Um, and I feel like the reporters are a big part of it, not necessarily because of the stories they write, but just because of the um, role they play interacting between a lot of the intermediaries. I notice on Capitol Hill sometimes, too, uh, members are a lot more isolated than you think. Um, they see each other on the House floor during the votes, but that's really only like, you know, an hour a day. And the rest of the time, they're sort of in their sort of atomized world, dealing with their constituents or interest groups they're meeting with or sort of like pigeonholed into a little committee with maybe a couple other members. Um, and it's really sort of the connective tissue between them becomes the reporters who know a lot more about what other members are thinking than the individual members do themselves. And uh, it sort of builds outwardly from them. Uh, and so in, in that case, you know, I do think there's a, a powerful role for media in these situations just because a lot of the reporters, particularly on Capitol Hill, where the reporters have absolute free reign, um, where you get them as sort of important sources of uh, setting the agenda of what's actually important um, simply because they can move it around between uh, elite actors a lot faster than anyone else can, including the elite actors themselves for the most part, right? Um, unless you're like Pelosi, basically, like the reporters are quicker, you know, have quicker access to almost all to all the members than a lot of the other members do themselves, um, which is weird, uh, but but actually true there. I do wonder what's going to happen on the Hill going forward in terms of security. Um, the members hate they hate having that place be a fortress. Um, I can remember when I was involved in sort of running the budgets for like Capitol Police and for, for the Hill. That members don't want big fences there. They don't want constituents feeling like the place is a walled off fortress at all. And so they prefer invisible security, much more visible security. Uh, and, uh, you know, it makes sense from their rational point of view. Ninety nine percent of the people who come to the Capitol are, are tourists who want to have an enjoyable time checking out the United States Capitol. Um, and, uh, and and that's who they, they think about. And they don't want those people to have a real bummer of a time there where they're looking through these massive steel fences. And so if you look at the security around the hill, generally speaking, it isn't typically projections of force. It's typically much more quieter things. Uh, they don't have big fences there. Instead, they have these very small sort of columns that would prevent sort of vehicles from moving onto the property. And anytime you try and beef up security, one of the first things the members worry about is, is this going to restrict sort of like how the average person views this place? Are we going to feel like we're just walling ourselves off in a tower I mean, obviously, in the instant right now, they're allowing all this massive security, but I don't know how long that will remain. Um, it's just too much in their personal interest to to not turn the place into some fortress they appear to be hiding in. Yeah, I remember even like the, yeah, I remember even, the first time that I um, went to New York City after September 11th. It probably probably been like less than a year after, and um, you know, seeing people in in military fatigues with. Uh, assault weapon just like in a subway station was so jarring and i mean i i i guess i was willing to accept i mean i i was willing to accept at least that other people thought it was necessary or like it, it didn't seem like an unreasonable position to me that that you know that 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 seemed necessary but um from my perspective it was like 
yeah, it was just like never anything I'd seen in the United States before. Yeah, I mean, the capital itself has restricted access, um, generally speaking. If you're not there on official business, like you can't just walk in there if you're just a citizen. Um, you have to go on one of the guided tours or, or whatever. But the actual house office buildings, the 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 six buildings that you know lying around the Capitol where the individual members have their personal offices. Those buildings are open to the public. You have to go through a magnetometer to get into them, but otherwise anyone can walk in there at any time and you're, you know, you know, one open door from from basically every member of Congress most of the time. Um, they are not uh, particularly secure places at all. Obviously the Capitol is itself, but you know the, the legislature generally runs um, on, a, on, a, on a theory that what you need to do is protect the members mostly when they're all together. Um, and that's when they're in the chamber, uh, in the Capitol, right? Uh, and they're all in one place. And then otherwise you just allow the distributed system to take care of itself. Um, you know, obviously political assassination is a reality in all of democratic politics, but they don't worry about it in the past too much in Congress because you can't achieve a lot of political objectives by, killing a member of Congress. Obviously, we don't want that to happen. It's terrible. Um, we wish it didn't exist, but it doesn't really happen that much because killing a random member of Congress, this, you know, the Congress goes on. Someone replaces them. Um, and so most of the security is focused on places the members are collectively. Uh, and so the big issue here is um, that's going to arise very soon in Congress is what to do about members in their districts because they have no security there right now, basically. Um, and when a member goes home to their district, it's all on them. Congress doesn't provide any security. And if there truly are Republican members of Congress who are worried about their or their family's own personal safety and it's affecting their votes, um, I don't think it's a much stretch to say that we need to beef up security for members back in their districts. Um, and we need to do it soon. What, what do I tell my three-year-old son about this? He's been asking questions about the election and... Uh, it's clear. That's, ama that's amazing. First off, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing in a lot of ways. Um, and I guess I'm trying to balance like a, a imparting the idea that, that the president is an important leader, but be also that government is a system and we're part of it. And, and there's, there's people who, who make the rules and people who enforce the rules and people who decide exactly what the rules are and right. there, there's local politics and there's national politics and you know we all take our turns and donald trump is president now and uh joe biden is president later all, all these things um what 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 did you think it was important to talk about when your kids were three um the, the way it, so i was working literally for congress at the time so it was part of talking about my job but the thing we always talked about was the difference between a king and a you know legislative democracy right and that the king is going to be the leader forever and he can make all the laws and we talk about what a law is it's a rule you have to follow and that if you don't like the laws the king are making there's nothing you can do about it and that means no matter how good or bad the king is you're stuck with them and then you can compare that to having a congress where you pick people to make the laws and this is where like the basic incentive comes in and you, you show them that you know, I would tell my kids that, well, what happens, you think, if Congress makes bad laws? It's like, well, the people can choose different people to be in Congress, which means the people in Congress have an incentive to make laws people like. That's where I always started. Um, it was just, you know, what kind of what kind of government do we live under? Um, and it's one where people have some input uh, into the decisions that are made publicly. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember the conversation I remember having that was 
toughest with my kids was the day after Clinton lost the election and Trump won. Um, and that, I think, you know, is always good lessons in those sorts of things. But the lesson I, I taught them there was that, like, you're going to lose a lot in Democratic politics, like a lot, <laughs> like a lot of the time you're not going to win. Um, and the important thing in Democratic politics is that you get to fight again. And, you know, what makes something a democracy is that the people who win uh, agree to have another election in the future and the people who lose agree not to violently revolt. Um, and if either one of those things comes undone, you have a huge problem. And, uh, you know, and so you just get to play the game again and you get to try harder to convince people um, that, that, that you should you should win next time. And I think those are good, all good lessons for kids, generally speaking. Um, because they're not necessarily lessons about like national governments they're lessons about group decision making. Uh, and ultimately what they're reinforcing is that the rule of law is more important than the outcomes. Um, now can that backfire badly when you're in government situations that are highly illiberal or otherwise not sort of, uh, applying a basic, uh, moral fairness? Sure. They can. Um, and that's part of sort of the second layer of things I always talk to my kids about now they're a little older is that, you know, our democracy isn't perfect and don't be fooled into people telling you it is. Um, and you know, this has, you know, all sorts of consequences that kids can see my, you know, the funniest thing is my kids have grown up in an era in the place we live and the sort of circles we travel in where they are just totally confused by racism, like totally confused by it. Right. Like I can't explain it to them. And we try to talk about segregation, you know, or just racial discrimination policing. And they're just like, well, why, you know, and um, that's both good and bad. Right. Um, (laughs) You know, and and I don't think they even have sort of like things they can even associate with it. And so, you know, when we talk about something, I was like, I can remember last week on Wednesday, I was watching something on TV with my kids and my wife. and, And someone says like, my God, what would have happened if these protesters were, you know, African-American and uh, and we were just shaking our heads and my kids were like, well, what, what difference would it make? And it's like almost impossible to explain that to someone who doesn't have sort of like the general context of um, uh, discriminatory behavior on the behalf of government or its agents mm-hmm. that are both sort of a reflection of sometimes bad government policy, but also sometimes a reflection of uh, individual citizens, personal biases. Right. Um, ultimately, I think one thing I try to shake out of my kids constantly is you don't say they when you're talking about the government. You say us or we. Um, when are they going to fix this road? It's just I can't stand it when people say that. I always try to correct them. When are we going to fix this road? Um, because the government isn't like a far off like boogeyman. And even in you know, historical places where it might have seemed that way, where the state was a distinct interest from the people here, it's not. Um or at least not in theory, but it is filled with people who come there and don't like strip their identities off when they join the government, either as elected officials or as sort of like street level bureaucrats enforcing it. Um, and so as long as you have problems in society of sort of injustice or, or uh, moral unfairness, um, you're going to have that reflected in your government to some degree. And that's something you just have to accept and that you don't have to accept it as a permanent um, situation, but you have to accept it as a current reality. Um, and then it's what are you going to do about it is the next thing. And that's sort of like, you know, those are the building blocks I've tried to give kids about government. Um, you know, and then, you know, the other thing I always try to teach them is that, you know, what's going on in Washington is, is important. But what's going on, you know, in our town is often more important, um, particularly in your ability to influence it. Yeah, yeah.
uh, speaking, inculcating rule following behavior, etc. Um, I'm playing a lot of high ho cherio these days. Oh, and, cool. Well, you know, the thing is, it's like the first game. It's the first game, and there's no decision making in it. But yes. learning how you play a game, and yeah, you know, like it, it's what got me thinking about this is what you just said. It's like you go through, you win or you lose, then you play again and you accept the outcome, etc. Right. Um, when we get to the point that, that we can play a game that involves some actual uh, decision-making that's not completely, um, you know, determined by chance events or, or just the rules of the game, uh, what, what's, what's, a good, what's a good such game? Oh, boy. What was the first game we would play that actually had strategic decision-making? Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm in the room with all, I'm in the room with our game shelves and now I'm just sort of like, well, well, so I'll remind our audience why you think that, that you're a game playing household in a fairly extreme way. I mean, so, I mean, the first game where like skill is involved that we always played was memory. Okay. Um, The original memory with the pictures and the beauty of memory is that young children have really good memories. Yep. (laughs) Um, and so sometimes you sit down and you play memory with a four-year-old, a six-year-old dad and grandma, and like grandma gets destroyed. Yeah. Uh, and it's really funny. Um, but memory definitely is the first game where you're like controlling the outcome has to do with how well you play the game. Um, and then I'm just at my shelf right now. Part of it is that we got rid of so many of these games that were meant for that age group. Uh, my kids always. Uh, always enjoyed connect four from a young age, which obviously is a game that adults can play and and small children can play too. Um, And that has sort of like, uh, you know, it's still very, very boring for an adult to play it against a child, but it's a, it's a good game to work that way. And then, uh, you know, the, the first card game they enjoy almost uniformly is go fish. Uh, And they're, it's not a whole lot of strategic decision making, but there's a little bit of it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you can play games like that. Oh, you know, so we have a game. You probably haven't heard of it. It's called uh, Busy Town. It's based on the Richard Scary books. Um, and it's the most brilliant game for groups of small children because it's a collective, a cooperative. Um, and uh, one problem with playing games with children in a group is that they can get very angry when they lose. <laughs> very angry. And they can throw temper tantrums that you can't be like, you can't talk them out of because they're four. Um, and so I've always, I've always liked Busy Town because of how, uh, um, oh, you know what else is going on is Zingo. And Zingo is a, a, a little sort of like, it has a go fish type element to it that, that little kids enjoy. Um, but, you know, I don't think like the, the games, getting kids to love games doesn't mean they have to be playing like the strategy games. Like my kids for a long time, even after we were playing the strategy games would play Candyland and shoots and ladders and you know, all the stuff that is not sort of in any way decision based. Um, and they love that stuff. Thanks. Uh, anything that we want to close on? I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, Matt on, uh, on short notice. Yeah, not a problem. Um, what else? No, I, uh, what else can you guys think of? <laughs> I don't know. Where do we? I don't know. I mean, this might be a bigger topic, but I mean, what are your thoughts on having members of Congress go? I mean, we talked about security of Congress generally, but like having actual members of Congress go through uh, 
metal detectors? Uh, I mean, it's never been the way it's been on the hill. Like, so there's metal detectors all over Capitol Hill. And the traditional rule is that the members are allowed to go around them. Um, and they always do. And if you're with a member, the member can sort of bring you around them. Um, and it's at the police's discretion whether they're going to allow that. But they always did. Um, and uh, so I think it would take a lot for the members to get used to it. And I think there'll be some pushback. Uh, you know, the old theory was always based on the idea that, like, if a member themselves is going to try and, like, shoot up the floor, like, like trying to stop that is extremely difficult. Um, that said, if you're actually concerned about it, it seems worth trying to stop. Um, I don't, there's not, you know, Gomer and Bobert and everyone else were trying to, like, kick and scream about the Constitution um, because Article Article 1 does you know, prohibit the arrest of members as they're in route to their duties as members. But that's a, that, that, that's trying to keep state governments or the federal government from arresting them. The house can make whatever rules it wants about its chamber. And they are totally within their rights to put the mag mags there. If the house wants to do it. Um, I don't know if it'll last. These are also the kind of things that if you institutionalize them, two things happen. One, it's really hard to reverse the policy and two people get used to it. Right. So if they put mags in the doorways to the house chamber um, and that's just, and they make it stick two years from now, when the new members show up, they will never have known any different and they'll just do it. Uh, so it's the kind of thing where I do think if they go for this, it might be hard to reverse. But second, like people are going to care less and less. And I mean, I don't know. I uh, and one thing that would stop, which is this is sort of a side anecdote, but a terrible. It makes me feel terrible every time I think about it is that. Several of the uh, African-American members of Congress and Senator Scott in particular in the Senate has multiple times been stopped by the Capitol Police as he tried to go around the mags and like demanded that he go through them because he didn't realize he was a senator. Um, and uh, that sort of like horrible racial profiling <laughs> could be sort of set in its place, or at least not half bubbled to the surface of people to go through them. I just I just, you know, it's just miserable when stuff like that happens. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a huge deal either way. Cause I don't think there's a very high probability at all. Like, I think it's extraordinarily low probability that you'd actually have a gunfight on the house floor. Um, on the other hand, the cost of putting the mags into the angel members is like so negligible that they should just do it. Um, yeah, I, I feel like there's kind of a psychological, I, I, like kind of I mean, I guess this is like rooted I mean, in like my experiences working in, uh, urban public schools and, you know, you obviously often yeah. sort of having to go through metal detectors for those. And, uh, I mean, kind of like what you're saying about the members just kind of being worried about the overall feel of, of the capital. I mean, I do think there's something psychological to being in that kind of like securitized mind state that, um, I mean, I guess it's not really the mindset I'd want people in when they're making legislation, even from like a self-interested perspective. Like that's not the mindset that I would want them in. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Um, I, I, I do think that I have more practical concerns about it. Like there are so many doors to the house floor that are used constantly. Um, there's all the ones in, there's multiple sets of double doors coming off the speaker's lobby. There's doors out of each cloakroom. There's the main door in the center. Um, and people are moving in and out of them constantly, right? Like there's, you know, you could be going in and out of the cloakroom all the time or out to the speaker's lobby, you know, seven or eight times in a 20 minute period. 
Um, and so I don't know how like just traffic management would be controlled. Um, and, you know, it's entirely possible that this is just a show thing for right now. And in a month they'll get rid of them or whatever. Um, but on the other hand, like I don't, uh, I don't have much um, patience for people kicking and screaming about them as sort of like constitutionally impermissible. Uh, that's what gets me. It's like, if you don't, you know, if, if you're annoyed by these and you think they're going to make the house function worse, fine for whatever reason that's a valid argument but sitting there just like kicking and screaming about your rights to get on the house floor without being searched is just bothersome to me um you know that general thing you brought up about sort of like the what is it like to work in an environment that's highly secured um i have thought about that a little bit obviously like the president lives in a world where he's totally encapsulated in a security bubble as the leaders of congress at this point um you know, and people sometimes associate that with the Secret Service and, and the national leaders. But, you know, even like the Speaker of the House and the, and the majority of minority leaders houses have their own protective details and are driven around in, you know, armored vehicles and constantly have people looking over them. And I, I don't think it's necessarily great. Um, on the other hand, I'm not sure the context of members being in fear of personal safety is a much better context to be in. It's less visible. We can't see it. But it might be, you know, just as psychologically impairing um, for, for decision making. Um, violence among representatives reminds me. Uh, I'm really enjoying Abe, the new biography of Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Um, uh, book recommendations, like good books roughly about politics or not that you're reading lately? Uh, books about politics I've read lately. Um, let's see, look at my shelf and see what I've got over here. Um, okay. So let me just pull off what I've been reading lately. Uh, so I just read an awesome book about, uh, the transition, um, from the, uh, Obama, from the Bush administration, the Obama administration It's called before the oath. And it's all about sort of how the government plans and executes transfer of power, uh, effectively. The, um, the, the Bush transition to Obama is considered the gold standard of how to do that well. Um, and it was because Bush made a strong commitment to doing it well and, and the teams work well together. And it's just a fascinating look at like one of those details of politics that like you'd never uh, you'd never um, uh, you'd never otherwise think about. Right. Uh, the um, I can't remember the name of the book about political violence in the 18. 50s and 60s, 40s. Uh, is it Field of Blood? Fields of Blood? I can't remember. Um, and uh, let me look it up real quick here, because that was an excellent book, too, if you want to read about, yeah, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, um, which came out mm, a couple years ago. Joanne Freeman, she's a historian at Yale, wrote it. It's great. Uh, and, you know, that is about, you know, potential gunfights and shootouts on the House floor. Um, I also read, I've, I've been reading a bunch of books about, um, about sort of populist leaders. Uh, I just read Demagogue's Playbook, uh, which is sort of a soft comparative politics look in a, in a popular writing about people like Trump. I think one thing about Trump, and I knew this before, but then I've been reading a bunch of books about it. Uh, a lot of Americans see Trump as a very like unique figure, but when you compare him to sort of other strongman types around the world, he's almost like comically stereotypical of them um, in every possible way. And that sort of reorients how, how how I thought about him, even even though I sort of knew that, 
but that like he just fits into a mold of national leaders or would-be national leaders who have existed for decades upon decades in dozens and dozens of cases around the world. And there's nothing sort of like about Trump that makes him in any way unique, except that he is an American. Um, right down to sort of like the, the, the most little small details that these people tend to be, um, you know, uh, either old or out of shape or otherwise not particularly like, you know, visibly athletic, except a huge part of their mystique becomes their sort of masculinity or physical prowess or things like that. Um, and, uh, I, I found that fascinating and, and, and Demagogue's playbook was a, a good, a good look at that sort of stuff. Um, and what else I read? Let me go out of my bottom shelf here. Oh, um, John Dickerson's, uh, hardest job in the world about the presidency, uh, is a, is a really good, uh, just general political read about the job of being president in the context of all the modern presidents. And he's, you know, he writes in a very journalistic style, so that's good. I don't know if I've mentioned this show before, but the best book about Republican politics in Washington in the last decade is, is um, Tim Alberta's American Carnage, uh, which came out maybe, uh, maybe two years ago. And uh, if you want to read about sort of illiberalism in uh america sort of putting today's moment in sort of historical perspective is uh suzanne matler wrote a book called four threats i think she wrote it with uh i can't remember what his name is um a co-author that really looks at the various sort of illiberal strands in american history and how they've interacted to create uh dangerous moments at various times and uh it's good because a lot of books like that can be written as total like anti-trump polemics and this one really isn't it really is a much more historical account of like what are the conditions that produce illiberal moments in American history and um, <laughs> and why are they all, all, all these different four threats coalescing now? So it's not a happy book, but it's, it's a good read. Cool. Thanks. Uh, I do have one more question for you, but it's long. Do you have time for like a yeah, long sure. up to a question? Go for it. All right. So uh, as I was driving to pick up my son this morning from school, um, I got to thinking about how stupid I am for the following reason. I thought I was so clever or, or, or efficient because when I had an email that didn't require response, I would put in the subject line and I do this, no response required. And then sometimes I'll even say like very optional, don't bother reading, et cetera. So like I put these little flags in and like, I think it saves people time. And I was feeling like very proud of myself for a while. Um, and then I realized that like, what I was so proud of myself over um, is something that's just this tiny fragment of like the military slash um, uh, like there's a whole system of procedure words. Like, I, like, like what I had inadvertently re-implemented badly and inefficiently was the distinction between over and out. Um, and, and, and not only are there over and out, there are all sorts of other procedure words and you know, like the internet, as we know it is a military innovation in a lot of ways, but there's also a governmental and military um, cognitive infrastructure that whatever one thinks about the government or the military, one would do well to study just because a lot of smart people have spent a lot of time building really good infrastructure. Um, so my question is, you spend a lot of time around the government. What are bits of cognitive infrastructure that, that you're familiar with 
um, that I can use so that I don't have to spend another half decade badly re-implementing the difference between over and out before realizing that there's a whole system of procedure words. What, what a massive question. I may have to defer yes. this and actually think think about it for a while. That's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I um, jeez, ah, No. I mean, so the thing that comes to mind is not an answer to your question, but sort of my own take on the question, which is people come up with every literally daily people will email me or tweet at me some like reform idea they have for government like institutional reform or structural reform for how it's going to make the system work better and like 99.97 percent of reform ideas like that are just bad yeah um and they're usually bad for uh, a very simple reason is that someone before you has thought way harder about this or tried to actually implement your reform and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And like, so, well, so, so just can, can I jump, what percent of them are actually anticipated and, and discussed in the federalist papers? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. It's like, <laughs> right, right, right. Like the founders like knew about this and so did the Republicans in the 1860s. Right. Like, and, and so part of that is that like, sometimes people look at governmental systems and they say, like, why do they do it this way? That seems so stupid. And it's like, actually, you know what? They've just implemented the least worst solution anyone's ever been able to come up with um, for that particular issue. And this is, like, endemic when people are trying to, like, channel, like, uh, political preferences into, like, party systems. Like, they just know that, like, their reform is going to be the thing that, like, no one can like strategically take advantage of. Right. And you know, this is just like in campaign finance reform, this doesn't end. Right. Like, Oh, I know how I'll keep money from influencing politics. Oh, sure. I bet you will. Right. Um, and like the, the, you know, it's to the point where like in that realm, my basic intuition is just like, do no harm. Like don't make it worse. Right. Um, and, and so that's sort of like a general takeaway I have is that a lot of governmental systems and I think probably a lot of corporate systems, no matter how bad they look on their face, are probably more optimized than you think. Yeah. Just because there's an accumulation of experience and knowledge to them um, that is way wider than you might actually think uh, and draws on an enormous set of knowledge that predates you. Um, and so sometimes, you know, this little major, like you said, like the Federalist Papers anticipate like so much of like. <laughs> these impulses towards different things right and then and, and but 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 so does weber right like a lot of people like in the 19th century like it's all laid out sometimes we have this idea that like oh man politicians in the 18th century and 19th century they were such like naive rubes right but actually i don't think that's true at all um they didn't have like advanced like gis systems to map out gerrymanders they just actually knew the terrain of the districts way better than we do right mm-hmm. um and they had to put a lot more legwork into it. And uh, they didn't have polling. They just had people whose intuition was so sharp about this stuff that they, like, would amaze us now. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I wish I could come up with a uh, on-the-spot amazing example for you. But I guess I'll have to think about it. But, uh, yeah. No, if you want shower, will you tweet it out? Yeah, I will. Because uh, it is it's, – it's absolutely true that, like – I mean, even, like, yeah – 
like basically i think it's just a it's a recipe for modesty like anytime you see something that you're about to like snap criticize that's a corporate or governing system like you may have a good point but like you may also just be missing the absolute sort of logic with it and and often it's because what you've stumbled upon is something that is not optimal in the sense you're thinking but is least worst in the practical sense um and that's sort of like i mean that the idea that like democracy is the least worst form of government like answers a lot of questions you know being raised by the t-shirt i guess like that's all you need (laughs) it's funny because like programming is the opposite where everybody like what you hear all the time is oh i should make a system to do that and it's like yeah, it already exists. Like, right. really, just Google it. It's it's like, oh man, but what if the HTTP request does that? Now it, yeah, it's like, oh, do this. You know, it's a flag. It's an option. You can already set that. It's just, do you just say import whatever? Like, it's it's already done and it's been done well. <laughs> like, it's and you can also like right. You can also see this in like various in policy realms, just in 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 public uh, in public life where like everything just oscillates in like a circle like back and forth like i see this in like education policy like in the broadest level the macro level it just seems to be like a never-ending thousand-year-old fight over whether to do sort of like mass general education or like specific like um trade training right um mm-hmm. and that just never ends like never you just join the circle at some point on there and you will see the entire thing play out um in your educational life as well as your children's over and over and over again um and because people die uh and because books get dusty and people don't read them right um people just come back to like reintroduce like all their new arguments over again which are just reruns of a cycle we already did in the you know 1930s or whatever well i mean Um, then then you get a phd in ancient philosophy and you like read platonic dialogues that like include these same debates yes (laughs) Yes. There's a a certain set. There's a certain set of human disagreements that are like absolutely not novel. Like no matter how. Like so. Like that's. I have a. I have a. Of a friend, and he's a. He teaches at Georgetown Law, and he's in 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 sort of the political world. And uh, he he wrote a law review article once just about how if you're saying the word unprecedented, just stop. Stop. Like it doesn't exist. Like it does. It probably doesn't exist. Like you really really have to be careful um and uh and and i think that's true i think that's true in 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 most human endeavors the the way the way this was always worked in my favor when i worked at congressional research service is that people would call up and they would ask a question that was pretty detailed complicated question and uh they had no idea but i had already spoken to a dozen different people about it in the past four days uh, because everybody has the same questions that they think are novel um, and one awesome bureaucratic strategy you could use with those people if you wanted to build up your own credibility was not send them the eight page memo I had written a week ago about this with, you know, 75 footnotes. That's perfect. But say, yeah, I'll get back to you on that and then send it to them four hours later. Mm. Um, and they just think you're like a Jedi Knight at that point. Um, yeah. When really the entire distinction is that they don't realize that their question isn't at all novel and that half the House of Representatives is asking the same question uh, this week. Um, uh, and again, it just preys on people's um, misunderstanding about how unique their own circumstances are and their inability to sort of like picture that if you're calling someone trying to figure this out, there's probably other people doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and you know, this does get back to poker. We should maybe like at least mention poker, but this mm-hmm. is all 
the sort of political equivalent of like the tiny um, regional card room where there's one person who figured out to start raising flush draws every now and then. And it's like, yeah. oh, no, this is the center of the strategic world. Like there's this like innovative thing. The yes. mask's gone out the window. Uh, yes. This raises a flush draw and, you know, everything is different. This is this is the absolute peak of poker strategy. Yeah, it also makes me like sort of like miss when things hadn't been consolidated by the internet or by systematic study where you did have extremely regional card games. It also is like in poker, it also is the hometown hero effect, right? Yeah. Like I can beat my neighborhood game. And so people in my neighborhood game who are casual poker players, like think I'm a lot better at poker than I actually am. Right. Yeah. There's just concentric circles and like I can beat this one, but you know what? There's eight concentric circles above me. And uh, each of those features a player who can destroy it and can't manage in the level above them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, oh, one interesting gaming thing that came up is I have a, um, this is sort of an interesting psychological thing. I have a, I have a new bridge partner this year. Um, mm. I, uh, I, I did not dissolve any of my previous bridge partnerships, but I've started a new one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's, um, it's unique to me because it's the first time I'm going to be playing serious bridge with someone where I'm clearly the better bridge player. Okay. And, uh, and that's weird. Um, because it didn't occur to me until we started sort of like talking through stuff. Cause he, he's, he's a good card player generally speaking, but he's never played competitive bridge. Um, and it's weird because I realized how, for how long now, all these years when I've been playing competitively with players who are, you know, my, as good as me or mostly better than me, um, how much I rely on them as a crutch <laughs> and now how much I'm being relied on as a crutch. And uh, all these scenarios come up where it's quite clear in the bidding, they're just like deferring to me and being timid bidding. He's being timid bidding or where like in a situation where it was obvious we could play three, no Trump or four hearts. And, uh, but you know, if I let it go three, no Trump, then the other person will play it and I don't have to deal with it. Um, (laughs) And now, now I'm being put in all these situations where decisions are being made with on the margin. I'm being the one forced to deal with it. Um, which is uh, a totally new sort of like uh, psychological piece of the game and really like an eye opener to me and just like another layer of the onion got pulled back where it's like, oh, wow, from the other side of this coin, the game once again looks very different. And now I feel totally bad about all the partners I've had over the years who I've sort of like uh, dealt with as crutches because for the first time I'm seeing myself as the crutch. (laughs) Uh, That's... That's good. And, you know, the other thing I just wanted to, like, say to you, because I can't think about this without thinking about you for several reasons, is that there are people who will be playing poker legally at Turning Stone this year who were not born when Chris Moneymaker won the World Series. React. (laughs) Uh, It's like everything else in my life now that I've, you know, gotten into my 40s where I'm just, like, absolutely flabbergasted. Because I can remember my parents... So my parents are like classic baby boomers. They're born in the late 40s, right after the war. And, uh, you know, if you if you look at like a map out of baby boomers, like how people think about a generation, it includes people who were born up in the early 60s. And uh, my parents were always like just totally dismissive of anyone trying to say they were a baby boomer who like couldn't remember the Kennedy assassination. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, nah, no, not them. And like it was it always seemed weird to me when I was like when I was a kid to be like, how could you be like sort of like dismissive about someone in a particular context because of like that sort of age gap but it like that sort of thing totally gets me the the very length of like how long post boom poker has existed now uh is just absolutely astonishing to me because if i think about like oh just imagine it was like 
you know, 1990 when I was in junior high school or whatever, like we're talking about the early 70s, <laughs> like the poker boom. And it's just like, oh, man, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And if like I talk about like, you know, a, uh, you know, a funny poker anecdote I have from you know Foxwoods in 2003, like there's a significant number of people who are just like, that was decades ago, dude. Like, that's not like, <laughs> like that's not, not a thing. Um, it was like when, uh, uh, it was like when, uh, you know, when uh, that guy ran in the primaries in Iowa, I think it was in 2016, but it might've been 12, uh, D's nuts. And it was like, right. all these, all these kids were like laughing about that. Who like, there's no chance they'd ever listen to the chronic. Like they had no idea who Dr. Dre was. They like, no, like the origin of this is totally lost. Them. It's a totally new joke for them coming out of a totally new space. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, for, I, you know, it, the hard part for me is that I feel like such an old man because the moneymaker feels like so yesterday to me, like snapping my fingers and I could be back there. Um, and, uh, the one that always got me is I can remember the first time it hit me that there were kids at, at, at the college I went to who weren't born yet when I graduated. Um, and it's the same, it's roughly the same time zone. Um, but I'll tell you this, they may be playing poker at Turning Stone, but they are not playing the poker I was playing at Turning Stone. And that's, uh, that's the nice thing about becoming old is that they don't remember that when Turning Stone was seven card stud tables with no auto shuffle machines. And the guy was there reading Bluff Magazine and yelling at me for not raising the river on him. <laughs> yeah. That is wild, man. I can't believe you just said that to me. Now I feel ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, like. You can't like generally prepare yourself for being no. old. It's like like I have this old desktop tower. It's not that old, but it's like it is like a tower desktop. It just looks like a computer to me. It's a rectangular prism, maybe twenty inches high. You know, like a plastic computer. Mm-hmm. And it was down in the mudroom, and my son pointed at me and he said, "You know what's?" He pointed at it. He said, "What's that?" And I said, "Oh, it's an old computer." And he looked at me as though I had misunderstood his question. He got, he got frustrated with me. He's like, no, no, what's that thing? That big box. <laughs> like, for him, like, computers are not big boxes. They're, like, little screens or phones or something. Like, 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 like no, no, idiot daddy. I'm talking about that big plastic rectangular prism. I'm not talking about, you know, it can't possibly be a computer. Um, my, da- my, my oldest daughter lives in the world of cloud-based file systems. <laughs> literally yesterday... Uh, she was having trouble doing something on her computer and I'm like, all right, let's just use this application. And then like, I like saved the file and navigated through the file systems to save it on the desktop and then to upload it. And she's like, man, you're really good at that old stuff. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And she's like, <laughs> she's like followed up with like, but I know Google better than you. And I was like, oh man. And so like, at first I don't even process that because to me, Google is a search engine that finds web pages. But to who her Google is just a complete ecosystem of uh, applications and suites for storing files, um, and she can navigate through like Google Drive and its integration and other things, which I isn't it is basically intuitive. But I am still much more likely to like save an image on my desktop and then like email it to somebody, right? Then sort of navigate any kind of cloud-based computing system, and that made me feel old, especially when it's like, oh, you're good at that old-fashioned stuff, what saving <laughs> files on a desktop. <laughs> yeah 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 wow yeah well thanks for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me it's fun it's kind of kind of depressing but fun <laughs> yeah i mean eh, boy yeah uh, at least we turned it around to talking about mortality at the end <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. 
<laughs> yeah, and now for the light upbeat section of this, we talk about, you know, just individual human mortality. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you got anything else, either of you? No, I'm good. Just uh, thank you, as always, Matt, for uh, you know for for helping us make sense of this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you guys. <laughs> Pleasure as always. Take really, care. thanks. Take care. I know you won't, you won't.